0: As we come to this passage of Scripture today, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, this morning we give you thanks that you have revealed yourself, that you have made yourself known to us in your Word. We ask now that as we look into this passage, as we try and understand what it's teaching, as we try and understand what kind of people it's shaping us to be, that you would give us the wisdom of your Spirit that you would come and you would open our eyes to what this passage has for us, that you would help us to see Jesus clearly and that ultimately we would leave here changed people. Our desire is that we would know him in greater depth of intimacy and that we would love each other with greater depth of intimacy as well. So Lord, do your work among us here this morning. We look expectantly for what you're gonna do today and we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, the things that we envision in our future, those things give shape to our lives now. In other words, all of us, all people, our lives are always lived in a direction. We're always gravitating towards. There's a gravitational pull towards something. Our lives are always moving towards something. So, for example, that may be something like retirement. So, if you have a vision in your mind of what your retirement years are going to look like, that's going to change the way that you live now. Uh, my wife, Dina, and I, we talk about this fairly regularly, and part of our retirement plan is that I would work. I know it sounds strange, but that I would work, not because I have to, but I would work because I want to. So, it's part of our dream that by the time I got to the end of my ministry, uh, officially in a vocational kind of setting, I would be able to uh, find maybe a smaller local church that needs uh, the, the services that I could provide, that, that couldn't maybe afford another pastor that maybe uh, couldn't afford someone with my amount of experience and I could just give myself away for free. And that I could volunteer for 20, 30 hours a week, not because I need a paycheck, but because I simply want to. And so that's a part of our vision for uh, our retirement. And I don't know when when that actual time will come, uh, sooner rather than later, hopefully. Uh, But that sort of vision of our future retirement years, that shapes the way we live now. That changes the way that we steward and invest our resources that changes the way that we approach certain opportunities, and we say, okay, there's certain things we could do, there's certain experiences we could have, but there's something in the future that's drawing us maybe in a different direction. And so we're going to choose maybe not to do certain things in a certain season because we have something different in mind for those future retirement years. If you, likewise, have a vision in your mind of what it looks like for your children to be healthy, well-adjusted, uh, productive members of society— that's going to change the way that you live now. You're going to be thinking about what are, the, what are the character traits that I want to build into the life of my child? What are the experiences that I, I think are necessary for us uh, to help build character and faith and hope and love and, and the character that comes from the Bible in the life of this little human being? And the way that you envision that future time of your child, that changes the way you live now. If you have a vision in your mind of a specific vocation or ideal job situation, that's going to change the way that you live now. You'll be thinking about what are, the, what are the connections I need to make? What are the opportunities I need to participate in now that are going to be stepping stones for me to be able to get to that ultimate sort of destination? What's the education, the experiences that I need to find myself having in order to find myself one day in that sort of ideal vocational setting? So that changes the way you live now. If you are looking to be married one day, this ought to change the way that you live now. You ought to be asking yourself the question, how do I become the kind of person that somebody wants to marry? That should be changing the way that you live now. And we could go through and list a hundred, a thousand other examples of how this is true for all sorts of things. All of our lives are lived in a direction. We're all headed towards something. In this passage of Scripture that we're looking at here today, the Apostle Paul, he gives us a glimpse of something that is a future reality, and he's showing us the ways that that can change and transform our lives now. If you were listening carefully, you notice that there's two times in this passage where Paul mentions the day of Christ. So Paul wants his readers to remember and to live with this in their minds that the day of Christ is coming. And that is, of course, the day when Jesus returns and finally, once and for all, makes all things new. So Paul is asking us as his listeners to have that in our minds and to live our lives in the direction of the return of Jesus. And as we do so, that's going to completely change the way that we live now. So among all those other things that we could pursue, among all the other directions that we could go in life, and and none of the things that I mentioned a moment ago, none of those are bad things. I think those are all things that are worth pursuing. But there's one controlling, underlying, foundational pursuit amidst all of that, and that is we are living our lives in the direction of the return of Christ. And all those other things sort of fit in around that direction, but living our lives in the direction of the return of Christ, that is, uh, that is the ultimate foundational thing that we uh, need to live with, and that will completely change the way that we live now. And so, Paul shows us here in this passage what will characterize us, what our lives will be like, what kind of people we will be if we live our lives in the direction of the return of Christ. And so, the first thing he shows us here in the passage is that what will characterize us is we will live with intimate, mission-focused relationships, That's what will characterize us as we pursue this life that's lived in the direction of the return of Christ. Now, everyone who, who writes commentaries in the book of Philippians notices just the level, the depth of intimacy that exists between Paul and the Philippian church. And you can just hear it in the language here. It's clear. It's obvious. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. It's right for me to feel this way about you. That is, it's right for me to be filled with joy as I remember and as I pray for you, since I have you in my heart. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. Now, we'll see in in the weeks to come that Paul does address some problems in this local church community. One of those obvious problems is is sort of an apparent lack of unity among them, But what's interesting about the letter of Philippians is that Paul does not write this letter because there's some massive problem that he needs to try and fix. Okay, so Paul didn't get word that the wheels are falling off the bus, and he needs to write a letter to sort of triage that and to fix it. So this is not like if you've ever read the letter to the Corinthians, the first one in particular. Paul gets word that things are not going well, and he has to write to them and say, guys, stop sleeping around, stop suing each other, and stop getting drunk at communion, Okay, so he's got to address all of these problems, but what's interesting is that Paul does not write this letter to the Philippians in order specifically or primarily to address problems. Sure, those things exist in the letter, but Paul's primary reason for writing this letter is, is what we'll learn later in the letter, that they gave a financial gift to him to support his ministry. And he is writing them the letter of Philippians as a kind of thank you letter to them, and of course, as he's doing that, he addresses some of these problems, but that is the reason he wrote the letter in the first place. They were glad to give financially to the work of his ministry. And he, as he's trying to think about how do I express my affection for them, the only language he can come up with to express that is to say, yeah, the affections of Christ, that's what I feel towards you. So he takes the ultimate example of there is no one who has higher, stronger affections for you than Christ. And he says, yeah, those same affections live inside of me. So you just get a clear sense of the intimacy and the relationship that they live with here together uh, between Paul and this church community. And, and I think it's, it's important for us to just recognize that this same kind of intimacy, this depth of relationship, this is not just something that they experienced. This is something that can exist in our local church family. This is something we can experience too. And that is because the same factors that built that intimacy among them are also available for us as well. So that first factor is they were together united in Christ. That is one of the primary sources of this intimacy they have is they were united in Christ. So among all the other things that made them different from one another, amidst all the diversity of where they came from, their background, their gender, their age, their socioeconomic status, amidst all of that, the one thing that they had in common was their collective identity and unity in the person of Jesus Christ. And so they could experience a kind of intimacy together because they were united in him. A kind of intimacy that they could not experience if they were not united around the person of Jesus. So they were united in Christ. And we too can also experience this kind of intimacy because we, like them, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, we are all united together in Christ. But the second factor that made it possible for them to experience this kind of intimacy, was that they were participating in a common mission. They were participating together in gospel ministry. And so you hear Paul saying, I thank my God, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. They were partners together pursuing the same mission. It was the mission to lead people to become followers of Jesus. To see God's restorative, the power of his spirit, restore and renew this world beginning now and ultimately when he returns. And they were joined together in that mission, and he was participating in that mission that actually helped to create the intimacy that they experienced together. Now, I think we all have had an experience of this, and I think we all know that when you share a common goal together, that there's a unique kind of intimacy that can come out of that. So, if you've had an experience of doing a school project or a work project with a team of people. It, it can be catastrophic. It can be awful. And it can also be great. And you can come away with that saying, there's something that now exists in our relationship that didn't exist before we went through this together. So it, it's kind of the, uh, the band of brothers effect. When you're in the trenches together, there's a unique kind of relationship and intimacy that is formed when you are doing something, when you're facing adversity together. And so this is part of what built and cultivated that level of intimacy with them was that they shared an intimate, mission-focused relationship. And friends, it's, it's our prayer, it's our goal that Elmwood would continue to be this kind of place where we would be able to experience these kinds of relationships, these, this kind of intimacy, this kind of mission-focused together. So this is the first characteristic that Paul lays out for us of what our lives will look like if we are living in the direction of the return of Christ, we'll experience intimate, mission-focused relationships. The second characteristic is overflowing Christ-like love. That will characterize us. Overflowing Christ-like love. Now, we see this in the prayer that Paul prays. So in verse 9, he says, "'This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more "'in knowledge and depth of insight.'" so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, when you translate from ancient biblical Greek into modern English, sometimes it can things can get a little bit fuzzy because there's just no way to uh, adequately represent uh, the structure or the form of that original language in modern English with it making any sense. And so you get a sense of that here when you look at just how many commas there are. (laughs) And there's commas and there's hyphens. And when you see that, it's an indication that the English translators are trying to figure out how do I communicate this in a way that makes any sense in English and is faithful to what the original author wrote. And so I just want to for one brief moment here show you Uh, based on the Greek text, what it is that Paul is actually praying for. It's pretty simple. There's two main things that Paul prays for here. So he prays first, your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And the second major thing he prays is that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then each of those main things he prays has a little uh, clause that sort of modifies it. So I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best, that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory of God. So, Paul's two main things he's praying for here are that they would be filled with, they would overflow in love, and that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What I want to just draw our attentions to here is we're not gonna have time to look at both of these but let me just draw our attention to the first one, where we see uh, Paul sort of linking something interesting with love. So, notice how he says, he prays that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Okay, so when Paul says knowledge here, he's not talking about sort of an encyclopedic um, Jeopardy contestant-type knowledge. Not like, you know, the people that would win who wants to be a millionaire. The kind of people that just know lots of things about things. That's not the kind of knowledge he's talking about here. He's referring to a specific kind of knowledge. The word he uses here is a word that's used in the New Testament exclusively to talk about the knowledge of God. So he's talking about the knowledge of the things of God. Theology. That may sound initially sort of boring to you. But what Paul is saying here is he's talking about the theology, knowing who it is that God is, looking into the Scriptures and being able to get a clearer picture of who God is and what he's done for us. That's the kind of knowledge that he's talking about. But it's not just knowledge. He talks about knowledge and depth of insight. That's a word that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Greek translation, is used often in the book of Proverbs to talk about wise living. So he's talking about having a knowledge of who God is, and that knowledge of who God is working its way out in a life that's lived wisely. So we live wisely based on what we know to be true about who God is and what he's done for us. So another way that you could sort of uh, visualize this is like this. Just look at this image. This is a XY uh, axis. That's the word. I almost said XY chromosome, and I know that's not right. (laughs) XY axis here. And you can see that as, as as our knowledge of God increases so does our love and he, here's the thing that I think it's really important for us to recognize is that Paul is not saying here that our love produces knowledge of God it's the opposite what he's saying is that our our knowledge of who God is and that depth of insight that is what produces that is a soil out of which a life of love actually grows and as and as this picture even represents there will be ups and there will be downs. There will be fits and starts. We'll take two steps forward and one step back sometimes. But the point is that the trajectory of our lives increasingly being filled with love, not only for those who are a part of the family of God, but also for our friends and neighbors who do not yet follow Jesus, that love will always be trending in that direction. So what I think is important for us just to sort of see here is that he does not pit love and knowledge of God against one another. Those two things are not in competition with one another. The knowledge of who God is, good theology, and love for other people, those two things are not mutually exclusive. In some ways, those two things are mutually dependent upon one another. It's as we grow in our knowledge of God that we will grow in our love for others. So in other words, we don't have to loosen our grip on what the Bible teaches. We don't have to loosen our grip on what we believe to be true about God in order to love people well. I think the exact opposite is true, that for us to actually love people super well, we have to be really tight-fisted, really close-handed on what we know to be true about who God is as it's revealed in the Bible. Because there will be pressure, friends, we know this. There will be pressure to say, how, how can you, if you believe what the Bible teaches, there's no way that you can actually love people well. You can't believe that about anybody and still be loving. And there will be a temptation to want to say, okay, if I'm going to love people well, it means I just, I just can't really believe this thing that the Bible says about humanity. And that's just not true. What's true is that as we love other people, as we grow in our knowledge of God, that is itself what will lead to us living a life of love for others, both in the church as well as those who are not yet a part of the family of God. And so the point is this, that as we we grow a love for others by cultivating a knowledge of God, that's how we're going to be people that increasingly, more and more, especially in the midst of uh, a, a culture that's divided like it is, the way that we will cultivate a love for people is by growing our knowledge of God. And so the question is, well, how in the world do you do that? Uh, Just a couple brief examples of, there's some ways that we as a church family uh, seek to create space for us to grow in our knowledge of God. One of those is what we're experiencing right now. The Sunday morning gathered worship where we sing songs that talk about the goodness and the beauty of who God is and remind us of what he's done for us in Jesus. We hear uh, a message that's based in a scripture text that tries to help us see who God is, what he's like, what he's done for us in Jesus. We Hear Scripture read. We hear Scripture prayed every single week, and all of this is building us into. It's it's all contributing to our knowledge of who God is. We also have small groups. We have groups of people that meet throughout the week to talk about Scripture, to pray together, to talk about what does it look like for us to live lives of faithfulness to Jesus, and in doing so, we're cultivating our knowledge of who God is. Uh, we also have an adult class, which is something. Uh, it's more of a more of a scuba dive. Uh, you could call it that. It's, it's sort of going deep into uh, either a book of the Bible or something about the Bible to help us understand what the Bible is and how to read it and how to understand it well. Uh, we have our, our next gen, which is uh, we're trying to create age-appropriate environments for our children and our students to grow in their knowledge of who God is. And that looks very different than the adult class does, but we want to create those spaces. And so there's the environments that we seek to create as a church family, and obviously we can't provide everything that everybody would want, okay? That's just not possible. But we're seeking to do something. And all of that is sort of in addition to what we can all experience in sort of a daily, weekly rhythm of opening our Bibles and reading Scripture, whether that's with another person, whether that's by yourself. We can all engage in. we can all grow in our knowledge of who God is simply by being in the Bible. I know that sounds... Uh, that's sort of simplistic, but that's really all it is, is spending time in the Word with Jesus. Now, we live in a time where there has never, never in the history of the world has there been as many resources as we have today. Never in the history of the world has there been so many free resources that can help us understand the Bible well, that can lead to uh, us cultivating a knowledge of who God is and what he's like. I'm just going to give a plug briefly for one of those resources that I found very helpful. Uh, you may have heard us mention the Bible Project before. Uh, the Bible Project is awesome. It's so good. There's, there's explainer videos. There's videos that talk about different themes in the Bible. There's videos that talk about different books of the Bible. There's, uh, there's reading plans. There's audio Bibles. There's all sorts of videos. There's free classes you can take. Uh, there's so many helpful resources, and this is all free if you go to BibleProject.com and my personal opinion is that this is the single most valuable tool and resource of this generation. It's incredible. Uh, And they now have a mobile app where you can do all this on your phone if you'd like. It walks you through all this stuff. It's incredible. There's, uh, There's so many helpful resources available, and I just want to point you to that one and just encourage you. If you have not, download the app. Start using it. Grow and cultivate your knowledge of who God is because that's how we grow in our love for one another. So that's the second thing that will characterize us as we live lives in the direction of the return of Christ. First, intimate mission-focused relationships, and second, overflowing Christ-like love. And thirdly, the third thing that will characterize us as we live in this direction is submission to the steady, faith-sustaining power of God. Listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I think what Paul is saying here is that if God has genuinely birthed new life inside of you, if God, through the power of His Spirit, has caused you to be alive inwardly and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what Paul is saying is that God Himself will sustain you on your journey. And this is crucial, and this is good news for us, because there will be so many times where we want to quit. There will be so many times where we become discouraged, we'll face difficulty, we'll face suffering, we may face opposition for our belief in what the Bible teaches. There will be seasons, there will be times where you, as a follower of Jesus, will ask yourself, will say to yourself, This isn't what I signed up for. There will be times where you find yourself asking the question, Is this even worth it anymore? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We'll find ourselves in those moments, we'll find ourselves in seasons of saying, I'm so tired spiritually, I'm tired, I'm weak, I don't think I have the strength spiritually to put one foot in front of the other. And it's in those moments that we have to remember who God is. It's in those moments we have to remember the faith-sustaining power of God that he has given to us. We recall, we look to the Bible, we grow in our knowledge of God, and we see the lengths to which God was willing to go in order to bring salvation and restoration to us. We see the lengths to which God was willing to go to save us. We see the Bible is a very long book filled with lots of people screwing things up. And we see the patience of God that for generations he was patient, and he was patient, and he was patient more. And after all the generations of people that rebelled against God, all the generations of people that were faithless, that gave themselves over to idolatry, after all of that, God still sent us his son. And that was his plan, was to send us his son to suffer and to die in our place. God gave us his son knowing that it would cost his son his life, knowing that his son would give his life in place of ours. And this shows us the lengths to which God is willing to go to bring salvation to us. And so as we remember who God is, as we, we, we remember the lengths to which he's willing to go to provide salvation for us, then we find ourselves having to face the question, okay, after all of that, do we really think he's just going to abandon us? After all of that, do we really think that he's going to just sort of let us fall by the wayside? After all of that, do we really think he's going to leave us out to dry? And of course, the answer to that question is no, of course that's not true. That's not true at all. The work that he began in us, Paul says, he will bring to completion. He will carry it forward to completion. Think of it like this. Another way to sort of describe this carrying forward of your salvation until the day of Christ is in every situation, God is putting the finishing touches on your salvation. In every situation, whether very, very good or very, very bad, God is putting the finishing touches on your salvation. I'm going to read you a brief quote from a commentator that I thought was really helpful. He says it this way. He says, Good news bad news, difficulty, blessing, unexpected happiness, unexpected trouble, it all has a purpose. Concerning all such situations, faith confirms, without this, I would not be ready for the day of Christ. So, all of the things that we experience, all of the joys that we experience, is a, it's a unique moment of preparation to look into the face of Jesus And that's true of every difficulty, every pain, every challenge, every disappointment. All of those are unique moments where God is preparing us to stare into the face of our Savior. And a life of faith would affirm and would say, okay, I know the lengths to which God was willing to go to bring my salvation. I can look at the cross and I know that God loves me. I know that God is for me. And so therefore, my challenges, my difficulties can't mean that God has stopped loving me. It can't mean that God has abandoned me. The only other alternative is that God in his sovereign wisdom, in his all-knowing goodness, is bringing you through this moment as a way of preparing you for the day when you meet Christ. And that gives us an incredible amount of faith-filled hope in the midst of all kinds of different circumstances. It's when we remember who God is. This life of this living Life in the direction of the return of Christ is going to make us the kind of people who experience intimate, mission focused relationships, overflowing Christ like love, and submission to the steady, faith sustaining power of God. As we come to the communion table today, as we do every week, we get to remember and celebrate uh, the goodness of God to us. We get to remember who He is and what He's like. As we look to the cross, we see a God who is generous, we see a God who is faithful. We see a God who loves us and cares deeply about our ultimate needs and has provided those for us in Jesus. And so we get to remember and celebrate what he's done. And as we come to the communion table, we should pause for a moment and remember, remember ourselves in the midst of that. We should confess our sins to the Lord. We should confess our sins to one another. And so I want to leave a a moment of silent reflection for you as we come to the communion table today. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed by the things that we have done, as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we are mindful of the ways that we have lived with lesser things being ultimate things in our lives. We're reminded of the way that we have pursued money or possessions or relationships or vocation or status, education, marriage, children. We've pursued some of these things in a way that has made them the ultimate thing in our lives. We've given our lives to those things and have not always lived with the controlling vision in our minds of your return. And so, Lord, for the ways that we have maybe looked to those things to be for us what they were never designed to be for us, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. In your mercy, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.